The talk this evening is on saying farewell to our fairy tales. We grow up absorbing a pretty steady diet of fairy tales. We absorb a romantic vision of life. As children, we hear the repetition of the stories of Snow White and Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and the rest of that cast of characters. And to the repetition of those stories, an impression is made upon our consciousness. To some extent, we incorporate through the very repetition of those fairy tales into our own vision of life, our vision of ourselves, a vision of our possibilities, a way of seeing that, has, that carries the impression that our fairy tales make. Our fairy tales present to us a kind of ready-made version of what it means to be feminine, of what it means to be a desirable woman, of what it means to be worthy of awakening. And probably most of us, this point, of our, point in our lives, find ourselves able to dismiss, to a large extent, the kind of mythology in our fairy tales, knowing full well that knights on white chargers and enchanted castles and all the rest of it bears very little resemblance to the realities of most of us. Yet if we look at the fairy tales that we listen to, we can't help but notice the repetition of the themes in them, the eternal kind of themes that we hear, the eternal kind of morals that our fairy tales present. And apart from the basic mythology of those stories, it's probably some truth in the fact that those fairy tales are based to some extent on a study of patterns of relationship, human ways of being, patterns of being. I'd like to look at just some of the themes that our fairy tales present and that make an impression upon us. Of course, almost every fairy tale presents us with the heroine. And our heroine in our fairy tales, of course, bears particular characteristics. She is, of course, very beautiful and very appealing and very desirable. Yet it's also a fact that her beauty and her desirability, although it offers certain rewards, it also places her in a very precarious position. Because her beauty attracts, of course, jealousy and spitefulness, her beauty and desirability attracts exploitation and abuse. Our heroine, though, is not so very much affected by all of that pettiness and spitefulness and jealousy because our heroine also has those inner qualities of gentleness, she's very generous, and her very generosity and gentleness means that she's not so much affected by the pettiness or the spitefulness of others. Our heroine is, of course, also 
endlessly selfless, forgiving, and generous. She's also terribly, terribly innocent and pure. And remarking or noticing her very innocence and purity, we do at times manage to overlook the fact that she is also remarkably gullible and naive. (laughs) But anyway, our heroine is protected by her virtues, her virtues of purity, her virtues of innocence, her virtues of selflessness, basically protect her from sinking to the level of her assailants or her stepmothers or her spiteful and envious sisters. Our heroine, too, is often characterized by the fact that she's basically unformed. She's basically undirected in her life. She's someone who is essentially made visible by the very dormant qualities within her. Her qualities, we know they are there, and yet they are not active. They are not assertive qualities. Rather, they are dormant. Now, heroin, too, is often very, very passive in that she awaits awakening. She awaits rescuing by someone other, by someone else. And when she has been awakened and rescued, then she can assume the role that is rightly hers in life. She waits for someone else to make her whole and to make her complete. And through that wholeness that is given to her, or that completeness that is given to her, she can assume her true identity in which her worth and her value is at last recognized. And luckily for our heroine, she is, of course, destined to be rescued. The very power of her feminine qualities, the very power of her dormant qualities, her goodness and her innocence and her purity basically guarantee that no matter what pitfalls she encounters along the way, she is destined to live happily ever after. And that is the goal that our fairy tales present. The goal is to live happily ever after. The path to that goal is portrayed endlessly in our storybooks. The path to that goal is portrayed endlessly in our culture, in our relationships, in our spirituality too. These are the basic myths that we absorb, the fictions that we absorb and digest. And unfortunately, the fact of it is that for many of us, it creates a basic case of indigestion. (laughs) The messages we hear again and again and again, be giving and be selfless and be generous. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with those qualities. In fact, they are often obviously very valid and desirable. We hear the message as though that we are not complete as we are again and again, that we need something other to make us whole and to make us complete. We need something other outside of ourselves. And often our very femininity is defined by this capacity to be made whole and to be made complete by something other. And we learn to await We learn to await through our own conditioning that we absorb. We learn to await rescue. We learn to await salvation. And we learn to await completeness. Not entirely passively, because it is not a a passive state to be in. 
there's an element of passivity in it, but there's also an element of great activity. There's a, pa- there's a paradox in the kind of messages that our, our fairy tales and our culture brings to us. We need to basically cultivate the virtues of our femininity that are presented as being desirable. We need to cultivate the virtues of surrender, of selflessness, of generosity, because it's by cultivating those very virtues in our lives and ourselves that basically we become worthy of awakening, that we become worthy of completing. And without those qualities, essentially we are not worthy of completing our salvation. So essentially we we await awakening first by becoming worthy of awakening. In that endeavor to become someone worthy of awakening, we also learn to look outside of ourselves to others, to a sense of otherness, to bring us that wholeness. We learn the importance of becoming different, of achieving our goals and our images of what that perfection as a woman, as a person, is. Because by achieving our goals, our images of of perfection, basically we're going to be ready, we're going to be ripe for completing, for awakening. It's a serious business. All this business of trying to become someone different, trying to become worthy of awakening. Because basically our salvation is at stake as we know it. Our capacity to live happily ever after seems to rest upon our capacity to become someone worthy of salvation and of completing and of awakening. These themes permeate not only our storybooks and our fairy tales. These themes permeate our culture. We are encouraged through our own conditioning to look outwardly for completion and wholeness. We are encouraged to become someone different in order to be worthy of completing. And that becoming and that completion by others is seen or interpreted as being very, very necessary if we are ever going to live happily ever after. We may not, all of us, be looking for the prince, the kind of idealized prince to come and save us or offer us salvation. But instead, we may find ourselves looking for the stamp of approval and the stamp of affirmation from others that we are worthy, that we are acceptable, and that we're lovable. We may look for our self-definition through winning, through winning roles that we feel are desirable, through winning identities that we feel are acceptable, through various possessions or props in the form of opinions or knowledge. We may look for self-definition through being one, through being one by another. And our self-definition essentially comes then through being completed by someone or something else. We may seek or find ourselves seeking to be the heroine in our own private fairy tales, making or trying to make ourselves worthy of awakening, trying to cultivate those qualities within ourselves essentially so that we will be acceptable and lovable to others. The themes that we find in our fairy tales and our culture 
also to some extent color our vision of spirituality. Our spirituality is to some degree colored by the very fictions that we believe in and that we create. Again, we look in spirituality to live happily ever after. We call it something different at times. We may call it enlightenment, we may call it liberation, but often beneath that seeking for liberation is this desire to be safe, to be saved, to be protected, to be looking for something other apart from ourselves. We find images that we either create or that are imposed upon us of spiritual perfection. And the images that we create or find that we adopt bear an uncanny resemblance to the images of the heroine that are presented in our fairy tales. Again, we hear the messages of how important it is to be generous, of how important it is to be selfless, of how important it is to be pure. Again, we look for awakening, but we are aware that to be awakened or to be rescued or to be liberated, we must first again become something or someone other than we are. Unfortunately, the path to that kind of image of personal perfection or the path to that place where we are acceptable and worthy of awakening, it's a path that they neglect us, neglect basically to tell us in the stories. Somehow the heroines and the kind of star characters in our fairy tales are somehow born into this state of purity and generosity and selflessness. They don't seem to be assailed by the very qualities that we find ourselves experiencing difficulty in coping with. Rather, the stars and the princesses in our storybooks have somehow managed to bypass all of these qualities that we experience as being barriers or obstacles or limitations. They seem to have bypassed the inner fears, the anxieties, the lack of trust in themselves. We may find ourselves, you know, unconsciously rather admiring this capacity to bypass all of that and feeling perhaps slightly envious of these, perhaps these images of this ideal woman that we have who has suddenly been born into this state of personal perfection. When we look inwardly within ourselves, we find perhaps at times a princess, but we also find the villains and the jealous stepsisters and the spiteful stepmothers, and all the bad guys are there. And we know that they don't bear the stamp of approval. We know that those qualities, the jealousies and the resentments and the, the negativities and the resistances that at times we experience within ourselves don't bear the stamp of approval. And so perhaps we find ourselves feeling that we must get rid of them because they are not going to lead us to that happy ending. We must get rid of them, become different to reach our goal. We realize that our jealousy and our anger will not ever, ever, as far as the stories go, bring us to salvation or allow us to live happily ever after. We may try to get rid of them by suppressing them. We may try and get rid of what we consider to be the negative by trying to 
overcome them or transcend them, try to deny them, try to reject them, we may find out so that at times we just simply become rather passive in relationship to all of this that we feel to be negative, feeling that really we're very, really rather powerless to change the negative, to change the limiting, and perhaps if we ignore them, everybody else will manage also to overlook them. And hopefully at the end of our story, we'll find that happy ending. Iris Murdoch once said that the beginning of human liberation is in the freedom from fantasy. Fear that women's fantasies have for a long, long time been tied to a romantic fiction of life, a romantic fiction about themselves, where a woman feels that she must await awakening, that she must be worthy of awakening through becoming something else, someone other, and then she must passively wait for another person or a role or an identity in order for her to become complete and whole within herself. And I feel a woman's fiction is often tied to this need to find self-definition through something or through someone and mistaking that self-definition for wholeness and for completeness and for happiness. The beginning of our own liberation, I feel in many ways, is awakening from our own fantasies that lead us to view life and to approach life from a place of incompleteness within ourselves. The fantasies and the fictions that lead us to relate to our own being as being incomplete, unformed, without wholeness. Until we can free ourselves from those fictions that we are incomplete and must become worthy of our awakening, we will find ourselves again and again in our lives looking for wholeness in ways that essentially lessen and demean us. We look and find ourselves looking for wholeness and looking for completeness in ways and in places that leave us feeling unfulfilled. We see ourselves reaching out to other people, to roles or to identities, seeking for oneness or seeking for completeness. And because it is not there and can never exist through that gaining and attaining, instead we find ourselves repeatedly being left with this feeling of separation, this feeling of, feeling of alienation. These fictions and these myths that we hold and perpetuate about our own incompleteness are what we must untangle. It's a basic challenge in our lives to untangle the fictions that bind us if we are to discover an inner wholeness which is truly liberating. I feel it's so important that we must be unwilling to settle for a kind of pseudo-oneness, that we must be unwilling to settle for a veneer or only a facade of freedom. We must be able to set aside the messages that we receive that to rebel or to question these images of worthiness and these images of acceptability somehow mars our femininity and makes us less worthy. 
Our doubts that make us question whether these images and these fictions are really true are doubts truly that need to be honored and to be respected. Because unless we can doubt the reality of these fictions that we are going to be made complete by something or someone other, we're going to be endlessly, endlessly tied to those fictions. There can be a great deal of fear in setting aside our mythology and in setting aside our fictions. You know, when you step outside of kind of sanctioned ways of being, approved ways of living, approved ways of becoming, you don't find that there are very many voices, sure voices or guides that support you in your path, in your endeavor to bring about transformation and to seek wholeness inwardly. And there's the fear that perhaps it's not a valid path, that perhaps that wholeness doesn't really exist inwardly. There's the doubt that perhaps that completeness is a fiction in itself. There can be the fear that we are not ever going to live happily ever after if we step outside of paths that offer us approval and affirmation. There can be the fear that we are going to be denied that kind of salvation or that safety of being approved and affirmed. And if we feel overwhelmed, or if we are overwhelmed by that fear, then we will find ourselves settling. Instead of for freedom, we will find ourselves settling for approval and safety. Because it is a salvation of a kind. It's a salvation from fear. The very essence of our being, the very fundamental essence of our being, reaches out and cries out for wholeness and for oneness and for freedom. It is a reaching and a crying out that often brings us to spirituality. It is that inner voice of the mystic within ourselves that seeks for harmony and that seeks for oneness. It's the voice of the mystic within ourselves that seeks for the end of division and the end of separation. And the voice of the mystic within ourselves is a voice that calls out for a way of life where there is love, where there is joy, where there is rapport, where there is cooperation. We find within our hearts, we find that we respond to a vision of life, a vision of being, in which there is an end of conflict, an end of superficiality, an end of prejudice. And our very hearts respond to a vision of being, a vision of living, in which there's an end to hatred, an end to resentment, an end to jealousy. At times we find ourselves glimpsing ways of being that are free from defensiveness and that are free from aggressiveness. And it is so valid, that vision. It is so valid to be able to listen to that voice within ourselves that says to us that this is a possibility for us, to live in a way which is free of conflict, to live in a way of wholeness, a way of love, and a way of joy. If we look at the world around us and we see its alienation, we see its conflict, we see its aggression, we see its exploitation, surely in our hearts we must find ourselves being able to say, this is not necessary. Surely that this is not the way that our world has to be, not the way that life has to be. Sometimes perhaps if we look within our own lives 
And we see the roles that we adopt and the kind of superficialities that we go through at times and the resistances we experience in our relationships and inwardly. If we see ourselves at times assuming different postures and standpoints of I know and I am and I have, surely at times too we feel a sense of unease with all of that, that this is not the totality of who we are that this is not the fullness of our own potential, our own possibility as a woman, as a human being. The mystic within us, I feel, recognizes a way of being in which there is wholeness, in which there is love, in which there is completeness. And the mystic within us again and again reaches out for a taste of that wholeness, But the mystic within ourselves, too, is very handicapped by our own fictions and by our own conditioning. The mystic within ourselves is distracted, basically, by the pressure of expectations, by the pressure of models, by the pressure of images of what we should become. Unraveling our own fictions, unraveling the knots of our own conditioning, is an unraveling that will allow the mystic within ourselves to speak with the voice of freedom, to define ourselves by our own wholeness, and to direct our lives with love and with integrity and with dignity. We search for that vision of wholeness, that vision of completeness in our lives, and again and again we encounter or are presented with so very many models of perfection. We experience throughout our lives a whole barrage of expectations, of of images about what it is to be perfect, what it is to be worthy, what it is to be lovable and to be acceptable. And we find ourselves comparing ourselves to those images that we encounter outwardly and that we manufacture inwardly of our own personal perfection. And when we compare ourselves to our images of our personal perfection, inevitably we all find ourselves to, feel, to be lacking, to feel inadequate. There are probably very few of us who find ourselves at all times and in all places to be beautiful, to be wise, to be balanced, to be generous, to be selfless. When we go into that kind of comparison, and then we begin to believe in our inadequacy, we begin to believe in our limitation, and that belief in inadequacy then is translated into need. We feel that we need to be different than we are. We feel that we need to overcome this that we call negative. We feel that we need to become acceptable. We seek, instead of oneness within ourselves, we seek to find oneness with our image of personal perfection. And in seeking to find oneness with our image of personal perfection, so often the path that we adopt is one of denying ourselves, negating ourselves, judging ourselves, undermining ourselves. And we deny many parts of ourselves in trying to conform to that image of personal perfection. 
We deny our sexuality, we deny our thoughts, we deny our feelings, we deny our bodies. Yet that denial doesn't mean that all of this, who we are, dissolves. Instead, it stays with us, so we're in this constant place of struggle, trying to overcome or neglect or negate or deny the actuality of ourselves and trying somehow to aspire to this image of personal perfection that exists as something separate than ourselves in the moment. And we believe that we need to become this person because it is by becoming this person that we are going to become lovable that we are going to become worthy, and that basically we are going to be saved. We are going to find wholeness. We may find successes. We may know that we make certain gains. We find successes in different areas of our lives. We may find success in bringing certain modifications about ourselves. But our successes are always so, so shaky and so, so fragile if they are based upon inner negation and self-denial. And those successes tend to have little meaning and really very, very little transformation. We also, the possibilities for becoming, we probably realize are endless. Hmm? You may have found yourself encountering it in a retreat. You know that anger comes up and you feel you've got to work on your anger because it's not desirable. And you work and work and eventually your anger goes away. And then along comes jealousy and you work and work on your jealousy and that goes away. And then along comes negativity and you work and work on that. And the possibilities for becoming are endless. We no longer find ourselves just getting to a place that we feel all right about when suddenly we hear about or imagine something else or someone else or some other quality that we haven't yet quite perfected and that it's very necessary for us to perfect. It's an endless cycle to be tied to. At times we look for homes and we look for completeness through other people in relationship. We look for oneness, we look for that sense of integration We look for the peace and the fulfillment that that oneness and wholeness means to us. And we may find glimpses of it in relationship where there's a sense of merging, a sense of oneness with another person. And yet so often we carry into every relationship we engage in, we carry the burden of fear, we carry the burden of a belief in our own inadequacy. And then instead of merging, how often do we find ourselves instead being submerged. And our relationships so often tell the story, basically, of our own belief in our inadequacy. If we mistrust ourselves, then our self-definition becomes very dependent upon another person. If we are alienated inwardly, then our own self definition, our vision ourselves, comes to rely basically on the way other people define us. In seeking that self-definition through others, we pay essentially a very, very high price. If we mistrust ourselves and feel alienated inwardly, we will practice a kind of selflessness. The kind of selflessness that says 
that the needs of other people, the needs of my partner and my relationship, surely must be more important than mine if they preserve harmony. And preserving harmony and preserving um, a kind of rapport, even if it feels very superficial, becomes a priority. We may find ourselves letting go of our own inner needs. We may find ourselves letting go of our own aspirations. And we may conceptualize that letting go by being able to say, well, this is a part of relationship. You know, a part of relationship is giving up. A part of relationship is surrender. A part of relationship, you know, is recognizing the needs of my partner. And yet somehow our, our concepts don't quite explain away that feeling of being somehow lessened of being somehow demeaned by our surrender and by our giving. We may find a pseudo-oneness, but even in finding that pseudo-oneness, when there is self-negation, we don't find that we live happily ever after. Instead, we find ourselves continuing to feel basically unfulfilled, basically needy. And when we feel unfulfilled and when we feel needy in relationship, How often do we find ourselves then looking for proof of acceptance, looking for proof of love? And yet somehow the proof that we're given is never enough to make us feel whole and complete inwardly. And when the proof isn't there, so often we feel resentful. We find ourselves feeling demanding. I need more. I yet need more and more and more. And if I'm given more and more, perhaps then I'm going to come to this place where I can feel fulfilled and feel whole and complete within myself. The oneness that we seek for continues then to be elusive. And then we start to doubt ourselves. Or we start even to doubt the relationship. Perhaps I haven't yet given up enough. Perhaps I haven't given way enough. Perhaps it's the wrong person. You know, perhaps I need to try out another relationship or with another person and seeking for this wholeness and completeness. And yet we find again and again in our lives that seeking it apart from ourselves, we are endlessly frustrated. And every time, every frustration brings its own inner message of a belief in inadequacy, a lack of trust, a deepening lack of trust in our own completeness. Seeking that oneness and that wholeness is a search that often brings us to spirituality. And lo and behold, who do we meet but our old familiar friends of images of personal perfection? We hear the messages again of how important it is to be selfless, how important it is to be generous, how important it is to be able to surrender for our own salvation. And I'm certainly not questioning the validity and the value of those qualities, nor am I questioning the validity of consciously working with destructive ways of being that exist within ourselves. What I am questioning is the ways in which we do it, this constant effort to become someone different in order that we can be awakened in order that salvation will be found for us or given to us. In spirituality too, 
we can be very brutal towards ourselves. We can use meditation as a judge of ourselves. We can use meditation in the form of, the wa of a watchdog, of a kind of censor who is always on guard against what we label as being the negative, the weak, the limitations. We may find ourselves being passive in meditation, find ourselves feeling fearful. We may find ourselves looking for someone else to deliver salvation to us. We may find ourselves going to authorities, different authorities, to tell us how to be, how to live, and what to become. And there are no shortage in this world of authorities who will gladly, gladly tell us all of that. We may find ourselves adopting different beliefs and different values of different authorities of traditions. And in that, we do gain a certain amount of security. We do gain approval. We do even gain for ourselves a kind of personal belief system. And we gain a kind of pseudo-oneness. We do give away also a great deal. We give away our uniqueness, our freedom to question, our freedom to inquire, our freedom to doubt. And at times we mistake or misperceive sameness for oneness because we belong. And yet even in belonging, no matter how deeply we feel that we belong and are protected by our belonging, we will find ourselves remaining unfulfilled because basically we remain alienated from the mystic within. Spirituality speaks again of freedom, of wholeness, of love and compassion. And again, there can seem to be such an enormous gap between the ideals that we're seeking and the actualities that we're experiencing. And how on earth are we going to bridge that gap? How are we going to become all loving, all generous, all selfless, all pure? Often the path that we seek is basically the path of negation the path of trying to negate our weaknesses and our limitations. And yet, despite our struggles and our surrender, our ideals seem to remain apart from ourselves and elusive. We need to question whether wholeness, whether completeness, whether fulfillment can ever be found through striving and struggling to achieve some kind of model or image of personal perfection. We need to question whether our own wholeness and completeness can ever really be dependent upon becoming something or someone. We need to question whether this inner completeness and wholeness can ever be something that we are going to gain, that we are going to attain, that is something separate from ourselves that can be achieved. Spiritual wholeness and coming to know that spiritual wholeness calls for a great deal of sensitivity, a great deal of love, a great deal of open-heartedness. It means recognizing that this reaching out that we find ourselves doing towards others in life is something that is very human and that is something that is very valid to be re respected and honored. So often we see ourselves reaching out to other people for connection 
and we find ourselves judging that in some way, immediately imposing upon that reaching that that is need, that is dependency, that is something to overcome if we're going to be whole inwardly. And yet it is a very valid, because in reaching out to form connections with other people, it is valid if it is not reaching out to gain otherness or to try and seek wholeness or completeness from another. It is valid in that it awakens our own inner capacity to love and recognizing the power and the transforming power of that awakened inner capacity to love. We recognize how transforming that power is and how very necessary it is in spirituality, in a path which is directed towards bringing about inner wholeness. Basically, our power to love and our trust in that empowers us because we trust in our capacity, the path of love and gentleness and sensitivity as a power that can bring transformation rather than believing in the path of striving and struggling and becoming. By awakening an innate capacity for love, for sensitivity, for open-heartedness, we awaken the qualities within ourselves in which an environment is created, an inner environment is cultivated, in which there can be an accommodation of the totality of ourselves in which we can totally and completely give up those inner wars and those inner struggles that we create for ourselves between the negative and the positive, those inner wars that we create for ourselves where we are trying to get rid of who we are or trying to deny who we are. When we can begin to end those wars within ourselves that are based on our own value systems, our own ideas about the need to become someone, we find that the very ending of those wars and the very environment of love and sensitivity and open-heartedness brings transformation, that we don't have to struggle to become different. There's transformation in that very moment of opening and accommodating. Spirituality does call for indeed a great deal of giving, often a great deal of giving up. It calls for a great deal of generosity and it calls for a great deal of open-heartedness. And we are giving in our patience to ourselves and others. We are giving in our forgiveness to ourselves and to others. We are giving through our open-heartedness and we are never lessened by that giving. We are never in any way demeaned by that giving. We are only lessened by giving up or giving away that is born of fear, fear of rejection, fear of losing approval then that kind of, that quality of giving is a giving that always lessens and demeans us. We are enriched by giving when there is wisdom within our giving. And wise giving is a giving that essentially treasures well-being. And is a giving that knows not just when to give, but also when to hold back.
we need to give to ourselves. Learn to be giving in terms of giving up our own images of personal perfection. We need to learn to be giving towards ourselves in terms of knowing what it means to allow ourselves to be. We know what it me- need to learn what it means to be giving towards ourselves in terms of giving ourselves the space to be who we are. We need to learn how to give up our images and our models and our demands upon ourselves, because that is a kind of giving, a wisdom in giving, in giving ourselves that gift of the freedom to be inwardly. We can offer that gift in every encounter that we engage in in our lives. Spirituality does call for surrender, not the kind of surrender that our fairy tales speak about. Spirituality calls for the surrender of our lack of trust. It calls for the surrender of self-negation and denial. It calls for the surrender of our reliance upon others for self-definition. Our spirituality never ever calls for the surrender of our trust in ourselves, our capacity to question, our capacity to explore and to inquire. Our spirituality calls for us being able to surrender our false notions and fictions and myths about our incompleteness. It is a relearning, learning to come into a, to life, to approach life, to approach ourselves, not from a place of incompleteness, but from a place of wholeness inwardly. We need our effort, we need our energy, we need our own resources, basically to unravel the knots of our own conditioning, our own fictions. We need to learn too, not just that kind of undoing and that doing and that asserting. We need to learn the kind of surrender which is in true receptivity, where there is a receiving of each moment. The receptivity where we are awaiting in a sense, but there's not an awaiting to be awakened by something other or by someone other than ourselves, but rather there's that kind of receptivity which is pure grace. It is a sense of inner grace in which we are touched basically by truth, by understanding and by insight. And that sense of grace is a very deep level meditation, a very deep way of being in which there is dignity and in which there is integrity. Knowing the times in our lives when it is appropriate and very right and very valid to be assertive. Knowing too when we can allow ourselves to settle into that place of receptivity within and to know the openness and the sensitivity of that quality of grace. That quality of grace is a grace where there is, which we wait for something or where we find ourselves not waiting for something separate for ourselves. It's a quality of grace in which we awaken to the wisdom and the truth within ourselves. And it's within that grace that we find love, that we find joy, that we find compassion. And that grace, that quality of grace and receptivity, that quality of, is the place, the home within ourselves in which we truly understand 
and see for ourselves the completeness that is with us already, the wholeness and the completeness that we are. May all beings be free from distorted visions. May all beings abide in receptivity. May all beings abide in grace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.